the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, what is this? The Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Before we begin, I'd like to say thank you to all of those who gave to the Union Gospel Mission effort yesterday. We appreciate that so much and this will have a significant impact on our community. So thank you so much. Today we're going to hear from Jem and Alan Fadling. Their book is What uh, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. We'll also hear in the 5 o'clock hour from Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral. We're going to talk about how to determine whether or not uh, the nursing home your parents or grandparents happen to be staying in is safe. Some of the things to consider. We'll also talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a contributor to the Daily Signal and a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation on the coronavirus drug dexamethasone. It's proven to be uh, the first life-saving drug for those who are gravely ill um, with COVID-19. And we'll also talk with Joe DiCarlo. He's the global ambassador for Medical Teams International. We'll talk about World Refugee Day. That's coming up on Saturday. We'll also talk about how COVID-19 is posing a major threat all across the globe to refugees. So he'll join us later in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, a lot to catch up on, and I hope we have enough time to do it. But looking at headlines from both yesterday and today, Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best says there's no cop-free zones in the city, and despite the perception, denies anarchy has taken over the Emerald City. There is no cop-free zone, she says. I think that the picture has been painted in many areas that shows the city is under siege. That is not the case. Interestingly, a a shop owner, an auto parts store, was uh, ransacked and burned. Uh, They made several calls to the police who never came. In answer to the question, why didn't you come, following our repeated calls as the store was being looted and ultimately burned, well, unless there are mass casualties, we're told by the mayor not to come. Hmm. Well, uh, Mayor Best was referring to the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, or CHOP, previously called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, a six-block area near downtown Seattle where police abandoned a precinct with escalating tensions with George Floyd protesters. The top cop insisted there are no cop-free zones, even after local business owners said that uh, 911 calls yielded no response. John McDermott, who owns an auto shop just outside the chop area, uh, told um, Cairo TV that protesters broke into his shop and he detained a suspect who stole money from his cash register, tried to set a fire to the building, but he said the, the police did not come. He called a total of 19 times to no avail. That was 19 times. McDermott said he finally had to give in to other protesters' demands to let the suspect go to avoid mayhem beyond mayhem, adding that both his son and some of the protesters were armed, but not no shots were fired. Best said the officers responded to the report and observed the location from a distance. Huh. A Richmond police chief has resigned as tensions escalate in Virginia, the capital there. And Minnesota, or rather Minneapolis, 911 dispatcher has raised concern or raised them at the time of the George Floyd arrest, according to 
reports. Wanda Cooper-Jones, the mother of Ahmad Arbery, said President Trump was very compassionate when she uh, when she met with him with various relatives of victims of racially charged violence behind closed doors on Tuesday prior to signing an executive order geared toward reforming the country's policing tactics. Special Report anchor Brett Baer played a soundbite of Cooper Jones describing the experience of meeting with the president in which she said, I was very, very emotional throughout the whole conference. Trump was very compassionate. He showed major concern for all families, not just one, but for all. Cooper Jones added, I can say that President Trump is very receiving. He listened and he addressed each and every family accordingly. The president tweeted later on Tuesday night that Cooper Jones is a great woman. Her son is looking down from heaven, is very proud of his wonderful and loving mother. Arbery was unarmed, 25, and black. He was shot and killed in late February near the coastal city of Brunswick, Georgia, because he was jogging in the neighborhood. Well, as I mentioned, the president signed a police reform executive order in the Rose Garden in a ceremony. Lindsey Graham says every black man in America feels threatened when stopped by police. And I'm sure some of you are, are rolling your eyes and shrugging your shoulders. The truth is, if not all, virtually all uh, black mothers have a conversation with their sons about what to do, not if, but when they're pulled over by police. Just saying. As U.N. panelists examined systematic racism in U.S., some countries say America is an unfair playing field. So international community weighing in, licking their lips, no doubt. The World Health Organization Director General Tedros on Tuesday called initial clinical trial results of a steroid shown to reduce deaths in critically ill coronavirus patients. Great news. In fact, we're going to talk about that with Dr. Kevin Pham in the next hour. This is the first treatment to be shown to reduce mortality in patients with COVID-19 requiring oxygen or ventilator support. Uh, he said of the Dex, if I can get this right, Dexamphanazone, uh, which reduced the mortality of those on ventilators with the trial by one third. This is great news, and I congratulate the government of the UK, the University of Oxford, and many hospitals and patients in the UK who've contributed to this life saving scientific breakthrough. Currently, 50% of COVID 19 patients who need a ventilator don't survive, according to BBC News. This drug, which has been used since the 1960s, is an anti inflammatory for arthritis and asthma patients. It's inexpensive and widely available. And other related developments, Dr. Mark Siegel hails the results as research into uh, the drug as a sign of hope in the coronavirus fight. And researchers say coronavirus lockdowns cost the U.S. economy $1 trillion without saving many lives. Dr. Fauci recommends that Major League Baseball season end in September over COVID-19 fears. In other news, Department of Justice is suing John Bolton in federal court to block publication of his upcoming book, which is set to be released next Tuesday. It may be too little too late. And the Boy Scouts are uh, now requiring a diversity and inclusion merit badge for rank of Eagle Scout. Uh, Nancy Pelosi wants masks to be mandatory during hearings. Well, Facebook has closed the political ad loophole ahead of the U.S. presidential election. What that means specifically, we'll have to explore on another day. But the White House is looking for strong jobs report ahead of the election as it pushes for massive new stimulus. We'll keep an eye on that. And the president, as I mentioned, signed the executive order on police reform. But the question is, is there a pro-police silent majority among African-Americans? Jason Riley, writing for The Wall Street Journal, says most black people know that George Floyd is no more representative of blacks than Derek Chauvin is of police officers. They know that the frequency of black encounters with law enforcement has far more to do with black crime rates than with racially biased policing. They know that that young black men have a far more 
to fear from their peers than from cops. And they know that the rioters are opportunists, not revolutionaries. Again, from the Wall Street Journal, Jason Riley. Is there a pro-police silent majority? Question still unanswered. Commentary magazine has issued a response to the question, America is watching a great unraveling, question mark. Across the United States, a great unraveling is in process, they write. A rolling crime wave under the guise of social activism has left the city, uh, has left city after American city shattered and smoldering. There is only one way to stop this unraveling. Refuse the bomb. To that end, we need to affirm clear, bright lines between speech and violence and demonstrate. Uh, an absolute rejection of political violence. We'll see if that resonates among those who are engaged in violence. And the Roe versus Wade of religious liberty arrived on Monday. That's the opening line of Josh Hammer. He argues the substitution of subjective gender identity for embodied sex particularly threatens biological women whose rights Congress specifically set out to protect with the 1964 Act. The entire edifice of American anti-discrimination law, after all, rests on the principle that the bodily differences between men and women in athletic competition in private or sensitive spaces mean nothing. Can that edifice survive if that cornerstone is removed? And he answers his own question. I don't see how. Ryan Anderson of Heritage says, so Gorsuch has embraced a simplistic theory of discrimination. In doing so, he redefined sex to entail distinct concepts. And Marcia Gessen, the court's decision is by far the most consequential in the decades-long history of the American LGBTQ movement. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding through some of the day's headline news. Uh, coming up later this hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Jim and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Anne-Marie Hancock, author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral. We'll talk about how parents and children uh, can determine whether or not the nursing home they are in is safe. We'll talk with Dr. Kevin Pham about this new drug that is uh, providing life-saving uh, hope for those with serious cases of COVID-19. And Joe DiCarlo, global ambassador with Medical Teams International, on World Refugee Day coming up this Saturday. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, anticipating our classic interview today, Jim and Alan Fadling. What is your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. That will be uh, our next couple of segments, so stick around for that. Again, we're winding our way through some of the news headlines of the last couple of days. Um, there's a double standard on social distancing, and it's just too much. Rich Lowry, to the point, makes uh, this statement. Many of the same officials who were most zealous in locking down their states and cities instantly made an exception for Black Lives Matter protests. Their rigidity became laxity in the blink of an eye. Their metric for reopening wasn't the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines or any other public health measure, but the wokeness of the activity in question. And that uh, also begs the question, uh, were they willing to put those people at risk uh, for the sake of trying to uh, avoid conflict. The editorial board of the New York Post weighed in, saying for all the talk of being guided by science, our decision makers are actually ignoring the science as they play favorites. The double standard is obvious and erodes the trust of the public who admirably adhered to these era-changing lockdowns. Uh, why believe anything the governor, the mayor, or the media tell you when they set one rule for certain people and one rule for others? Lonnie Chen says public health officials should be helping us understand the comparative risks of activities, not endorsing the causes they think will prohibit um, the ones they and rather prohibit the ones they don't. 
Well, the Chicago radio host Amy Jacobson has won her case against Governor Pritzker. In a fit of pique, the Illinois governor had barred her from participating in his lockdown, in his press briefings, rather. She has uh, now been re-invited in an early example of lockdown hypocrisy. Jacobson had asked some uncomfortable questions. In mid-May, Jacobson broke news that uh, Pritzker's family had traveled to their uh, equestrian estate in Wisconsin amid Illinois stay-at-home order. Weeks after it was reported that his family was at another estate in Florida. The news raised questions about why the stay-at-home order did not apply to the governor's family. Again, a double standard on social distancing and um, quarantining just too much. Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, how about Mount Rushmore? While the tear-it-all-down moment does not seem to be showing any signs of measured reason or discrimination, in Portland, they've torn down a statue of Thomas Jefferson like it was Saddam Hussein. In Boston, they're talking about removing a statue of Abraham Lincoln with a freed um, slave post underneath it. When we're looking at removal of pieces and celebrating um, others... Um, author of Respect, uh, Respectfully, the Declaration of Independence and the Emancipation Proclamation. We have got a lot more removals to do. Hmm. If we really want to go down that path, the late uh, Bree Payton wrote an earlier, far less successful iconoclastic moment when eyes were set on Mount Rushmore, a great look at uh, the cancel culture right before our eyes. Well, to date, 67 schools have been permanently shut down but these numbers likely portend significant numbers to come. Cato, the Institute, has been tracking the closures with Catholic schools paying the highest price to date, a full 55 of 67. Well, seven days before the scheduled June 23rd release of a tell-all account of John Bolton's tenure as President Trump's national security advisor, the Justice Department late Tuesday mounted a last-ditch effort to block its publication. A 27-page civil lawsuit filed by the Justice Department against Bolton with the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia alleges that publication of his 592-page book, The Room Where It Happened, would be a violation of the non-disclosure agreements he signed and compromised national security. Hmm. Well, according to the Daily Wire, in a letter posted Monday, the National Executive Committee for the Boy Scouts of America announced a new badge related to diversity and inclusion in conjunction with the far-left anti-cop Black Lives Matter movement. Well, the new badge will be a prerequisite to becoming an Eagle Scout, according to the committee. Though Black Lives Matter is clearly political, calling for national defunding of police departments and the disruption of the nuclear family, the Scouts claim the move is apolitical and about mere anti-racism. That's akin to saying the BSA surrounding, surrendering rather to the Rainbow Mafia was about protecting children. Mm. Well, this legislation encompasses the uh, American spirit. Senate Republicans spearheaded the Tim Scott, by Tim Scott, unveiled police reform legislation dubbed the Justice Act, one of several that have been announced in the last few days. Chokeholds will be banned except in an officer's life at risk. The president signs the police reform executive order in the Rose Garden on Tuesday. And House GOP, they report findings the uh, WHO complicit in Beijing's COVID cover-up calls for the director's ouster. There's no evidence the Senate Ethics Committee dismisses the insider trading inquiry into Senator Kelly Loeffler. No evidence, apparently. And NBC News is under fire for pushing Google to remove conservative sites from the ad platform. If you're in the news business, you obey Google. Tucker Carlson blasted the tech giant's power over media in the Washington Examiner, worth checking out. And 54 scientists have lost their jobs as a result of the NIH probe into foreign ties. Republicans are preparing for an energy cold war with China. 
And record spike in new coronavirus cases reported in six U.S. states as reopening accelerates for reasons that may not be quite as clear as one might imagine. And Beijing residents are rounded up and put in quarantines as the city goes back into lockdown. Common drug, a steroid called dexamethasone, uh, reduces coronavirus deaths, according to scientists, particularly those who have been on uh, ventilators or oxygen. And flushing toilets, we're told once again, can spread coronavirus. Put the top down. There's the answer. Well, Al Sharpton is going to headline the Tulsa Juneteenth event after the Trump rally pushed back their event a day. And Black Brute, who shoved a white elderly New York City woman, has been arrested over 100 times. I've seen the image, and it is disturbing and disgusting. A young man is walking down the sidewalk. Walking toward him is an elderly woman. We learn later that she is in her 90s. He reaches over with one hand, pushes her to the ground, and uh, walks uh, walks on, looking back to observe that she has fallen, uh, unable to break her fall. She's pushing a cart and apparently is severely injured. Richmond, Virginia, police chief is forced out as the protests continue there. And Christopher Columbus, the statue, is going to be removed from the California Capitol at the direction of top Democrats. The great purging continues. Minnesota's Freedom Fund spent about $200,000 on bail despite $30 million in donations. Huh, 200,000 on bail, 30 million in donations. Uh, 20 Indian soldiers killed in the first deadly clashes with Chinese troops in 45 years. Both nations have uh, nuclear weapons, and the clash between India and China is heating up. North Korea is sending soldiers to joint border sites. African, na- African nations rather demand the U.N. investigation into American uh, police brutality. No, really, that's uh, what's being called for. And President um, French President Emmanuel Macron said France won't remove statutes or erase history there. Meanwhile, China is collecting DNA from tens of millions of men and boys for the purpose of building a genetic map. Who uh, knows what they plan to do with that? Joe Biden once used find people in 1993 to describe uh, supporters of Confederate statutes, statues rather, and he's changed his tune now. A new Facebook and Instagram options that let uh, users turn off political ads. Wow, this is a big day. Voters um, opposing defund the police uh, but back major reforms are in the majority across the country. And oil demand pro- uh, projected to spike in 2021 by 5.7 million barrels daily as oil companies slash production. Well, let's see. Donald Trump bashed, washed up Mr. Bolton over his forthcoming book saying ex-national security advisor broke the law. It's amazing what difference um, a period of time can make between those who work together and those who despise one another. Well, we won't have time to get into much more of that because we have coming up a classic interview with Jim and Alan Fadling. What does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Also, in the next hour, we're going to take a look at that uh, drug that is addressing COVID-19 patients who are seriously ill. It holds significant promise. And we'll talk with Anne-Marie Hancock, author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral. We'll talk about um, whether or not uh, nursing homes are safe and what kinds of things we need to consider when caring for our parents. And we'll hear from Joe DiCarlo with uh, Medical Teams International. He's their global ambassador. And Saturday happens to be World Refugee Day. We'll talk about that and how COVID-19 is posing a major threat worldwide. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guests ask several really important questions. Among them, what do you really want? What is your soul clinging to? And what's getting in your way? Well, in the pages of their book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You, my guests, Jim and Alan Fadling, they outline eight key questions that offer deep insight into how we experience soul change. Now, the questions open the door to spiritual transformation, and they help us unpack where we're stuck, where we're in pain, where we're afraid, and much more. They also recall the path to joy and to the heart of God. Spiritual inventories and exercises in the book will guide you along with stories from both Jem and Alan's lives and their ministry together through unhurried living. It's a great book. We're going to talk about it here in just a moment. But first, let me introduce our guests. Jem Fadling is a founding partner of Unhurried Living, Inc., a nonprofit that resources and trains Christian leaders to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better. A trained uh, spiritual director, retreat speaker, and podcaster, she enjoys serving as a guide with the intention of helping people encounter God in their very real lives. Alan Fadding is president and founder of Unhurried Living, Inc., a mission in Mission Viejo, California. He speaks and consults internationally with lots of organizations you would recognize. He's the award-winning author of An Unhurried Leader and An Unhurried Life, which was honored with the Christianity Today Award of Merit in Spirituality. He's also a contributing author to Eternal Living. Um, if reflections on Dallas Willard's teaching on faith and formation, he is a certified spiritual director. And the pair join us today to talk about their very important book. Once again, the title, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having us. We're glad to be with you. Let's begin with the title of the book, What Does Your Soul Love? Talk a bit about the nature of that question and what it reveals about us when we're trying to determine how how does transformation happen and where do I even begin? Well, sometimes that question is helpful, especially when uh, you might be in a dry place or maybe a dark place and sort of life has become a little more like a fog, let's say. There's a lot of metaphors in there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's when um, the, the methods and maybe the practices that you've been using feel like they've dried up a bit. But you can sort of come at it differently through the, the filter of desire. What does your soul love to do? What do you love to do? Maybe answering that question can give you a new connection to God maybe take you in deeper than you have been before. Is the goal ultimately um, to experience transformation that is being directed by God or just uh, pursuing what I like to do, which is kind of a cultural um, recreation? Um, You know, what what do I really like to do? And I'm going to pursue that. Right. Well, I like to think of the verse, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we assume that God is the one initiating this process. He is the guide in transformation. So when we're asking the question, what do you want? It's not on that surface level Mm -hmm. of just preferences, right? There is a way of learning and discerning to hear, uh, to look inside and to see how God has made me and what might be the ways, those ways that I can engage with him. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you write about in the book is the fact that, um, 
transformation is something that God initiates and facilitates. We are participants in that process, and it really grows out of an understanding of God's profound and deep life-altering love for us. Uh, Help make the connection between his love for us and that transformation that we all long for but may not quite know how to how to (laughs) arrive at yeah let me let me step in and just say i think it's really important to always remember that we don't seek change so that we'll be loved Mm -hmm. but that we remember we're loved and therefore we can change in fact love is the engine for the change that we are often hungry for and and for that matter the the change god invites us to god begins in love And from that place, we then are able to enter into all the ways in which he would like for us to be able to be transformed. He's doing that work, and love is the engine of that work. You write that sometimes we opt for outward change as a substitute for the inward change to which God has been inviting us. In doing so, we escape a change in soul by choosing a change of venue. But usually the change needed is in our soul, not our setting. In the first chapter, you write about an invitation and changing from the center. You're not simply talking about superficial change where it's a change of venue and therefore everything uh, will fall into place. But you're talking about the interior as does Scripture. Yeah, that's really well said. I I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our lives would be better if something out there would change, if that person would behave better, or if that situation in my life were different. And we think that change out there will improve my situation. But the the change that God invites us to is a change in who we are. The, The beautiful genius of Jesus is that he comes and he addresses the heart. This is his very first message. He calls out the word repentance, which some people have turned into a word that sounds like bad news, but it's the best news there is. I can change. And the genius of Jesus is that that change always begins at the center of who I am. You know, he he uses lines in the Gospels like, make the tree good, which is another way of saying, deal with the root system. Don't just deal Mm -hmm. with the superficial outside. You write about, um, uh, in What Does Your Soul Love, transformation as being different from perfectionism. This isn't a road to uh, becoming uh, perfect in my presentation and therefore more pleasing to God and transformed. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the kind of transformation we see in Scripture and um, this desire that some of us have for perfectionism? Yeah, I, I I call myself a recovering perfectionist, actually. <laughs> so you can recover, you know, huh? <laughs> well, I say recovering anyway. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm on the way. But <laughs> there you I go. think what's beautiful about the, the transforming process we're in is that it is indeed uh, a, a journey, that the language even in the New Testament is is a kind of being transformed. Um uh, and and therefore, it's not something I arrive at in 10 minutes or two weeks or two years. It's this lifelong continuing process. The problem with pursuing perfectionism is there's an ironic sense of God not being in the middle of it. Because the minute I think I'm getting to some kind of perfection, I clearly am not using the sorts of standards God would be using to measure perfection. I've usually created some sort of artificial and likely a bit smaller version of perfection that I'm shooting for, whereas when God wants to talk about anything like perfection, the wholeness, holiness, he's always measuring that by things like love or joy or peace. 
And those are huge mm-hmm. things that we can't possibly wrap our arms around. Um, you're right, and I think this is so important. It can uh, it can help to remember that we are not the prime movers in this transformation. The language of transformation in the New Testament, for example, is in the passive voice. Rather than being initiators of the action, we are responders to the action of another. We're being transformed rather than transforming ourselves. Now, that's a great relief, and it helps in our understanding of what God is doing in and through us. Yes, it is a relief, isn't it? I mean, it's yes. be, trans- be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So then this begs the question, are we open and aware about this process that is going on? If it is happening to us, um, there is still a measure of cooperating. Yes. And so how can we grow to be people who listen to God to, to respond to this great initiation of love, and care in the transformational journey. And we think these questions, there's eight questions, and of course there's more than that. Um, But these are at least that if you walk down the path of any one of them, you can find yourself on that transformational cooperative journey. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. And it may be only eight questions, but these are great questions to begin that journey that may lead to others that are also uh, useful to you. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jem and Alan Fadling. They are co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. It's a very practical book. It's not just asking a question uh, that's followed by good luck. I hope it works out for you. But they provide great resource to help you work through and think through um, how transformation occurs. And uh, it's just a, a great resource for that purpose. Let me make sure I have both my callers on the line here. Now, this began something of a, an odyssey, an answer to a question that, Jem, you were uh, seeking. You were asking yourself in a conversation uh, with uh, Alan, how have I remained on this path of my lifetime? What postures, what perspectives, what orientations kept me on the path? It was sort of an Ignatius of Loyola's looking back um, that uh, produced his uh, exercises. Can you talk a little bit about the beginning of this book and uh, in your uh, asking those questions, how you help others who may have similar questions in a desire to experience the transformation that God offers? Well, yeah, what, what initially happened was I was probably, I think, in my 40s. I had uh, been spending my life uh, like most of us, wanting to grow, doing my best to cooperating with this process that we've been talking about. And I found myself up on a little bit of a, of a vista point. And I, I liked who I had become up to that point. And I asked God, it really is a prayer. How did I get here? What went on? Because I'm a curious person and I like process and I, and I wanted to learn from that so that I could keep growing. And I do have a heart to help others. And so Really, I carried that prayer around with me for months, and I just kept saying, how did this happen? What was I doing? What were the common threads here? And it emerged as these, as these eight questions, and they weren't in the exact form that are in the book now, but the essence of each one of them was, were answers that came up over time. You know, the things that are common to all of us, fear and control and resistance 
and how vulnerable can I be and how much truth am I engaging in? And I, I, as we've been talking to people, we're finding out that people are really resonating with these. So I don't think I stumbled on anything brand new. I think God just showed me that the things that, that come up in all of our lives are actually paths to growth. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to offer these to others um, and say, if you walk down these um, with an open, open heart and a listening ear, you too can grow. Now, if the goal is not perfectionism or self-actualization or a change of venue, what ultimately is the goal in going through the exercise of determining what does my soul love? So I think, you know, the I, I, I would almost call it the, the Sunday school answer is we would say it's to become more like Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, that the, the model for which we are into which we are being changed is into the beautiful image of who Jesus is. He comes to earth. He takes on a body like ours. He takes on a life like ours. He depends on the Spirit of God. He lives a particular way. And then he invites us to follow him, and his Spirit enables us to do that. But what we find is, as we are following, there are things within us that get in the way. There are temptations. There are fears. There are other kinds of barriers. And Part of the the presence of God, the innocent work, is enabling us to uh, overcome some of those barriers and make our way through them and move increasingly in the direction of being the kind of person Jesus would be if he were living my life now. Mm. Well, let's talk about these eight questions. I'm certain our listeners are intrigued by what kinds of questions might these be, and how do I go about not only just asking the question, and sitting for a minute quietly, but really pursuing the answers and what they mean toward this desire to transform in the way that God intends. Talk a little bit about maybe not all eight, but a couple of the the questions that will help us on this journey. Well, why don't we start with one of the one of the hardest ones? That maybe the pain and the question there is how are you suffering? And I think most of us would say that we don't like suffering. We don't like pain. And if something like that is happening, we want it to be over as soon as possible. But in my life, I had a very severe issue in my lower back with some nerve, nerve things. And it was the worst pain of my life. Mm. Now, while it was happening, I didn't enjoy it. I did, I did, in fact, want it to get over fast. But the process of working through that pain, which took probably about six months for a healing that felt me getting back to my normal. Um, Within that, I met with God in a way that I think was unique to any other point in my life, and it was meeting him in the pain. And I had been reading Mother Teresa, and she talked about engaging the suffering Christ. And how many times do you really get a chance to have empathy for Jesus as he went to the cross and bore all our sins and took on all of that pain? Well, when you're having physical pain in your body, for example, that's not the only kind of pain, but in this case, that was my example. Um, There's a way to engage God, I think, at a deeper way than just cognitively. Mm -hmm. And so being open to these kinds of things, such as pain, to be ways in which we can meet God at deeper levels. 
As I mentioned earlier at the end of uh, the chapters, you offer opportunities to to go deeper and to really reflect in a way that's going to have an impact. Uh, For example, there are a a list of questions that are titled Be Transformed. And the goal of that is to draw us in so that we don't just become stimulated intellectually, but we really press in and, and go deep in a way that's going to afford the kind of transformation that God desires for us. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how the, the chapters are set up so that we do go deeper and it's not just an intellectual exercise. Yeah, that's a good way to ask it. I think, you know, um, the reason we wrote the questions at the end and the way we wrote those mm-hmm. questions were an opportunity to step a little deeper in. The, the thing about these questions is um, it may be tempting to think that our goal is to read the chapter, ask the question, spend a few minutes, get an answer, move on. But the reality that we've found is that these are the kinds of questions you find yourself revisiting often along the way. Like the question about fear, for example, I wish I could say, oh boy, I remember back in the uh, 86, boy, I had a real event with fear and boy, I dealt with it and I've never been fearful again. But my experience is that fear keeps coming back and it becomes a place of encounter with God. And so the questions at the end of the chapter and the questions that form the framing of each chapter are simply ways in which, places in which, to encounter God, to listen for God, to watch for God, and to grow in my uh, relationship with God. One of your chapters is titled Resistance, What is Getting in Your Way? And I could easily rattle off a whole list of things, you know, the other people and circumstances and my employment and my husband, and, you know, you could list off external things that are getting in the way. But you encourage us to, again, go deeper in considering what's getting in our way. And more often than not, we discover at least some element of our own, um, I'm not even quite sure how to describe it, but our getting in our own way. Yeah, I think um, I used an image in in that chapter that I'll share. But the, the thing that I learned is that the thing that gets in my way most tends to be me. Yeah. Now, I don't like that fact, and I, I'd like to sort of blame everybody else and, and everything else. That makes me feel a little bit better for a moment, but it doesn't help me much in the journey of change. So I use this picture, um, the example of my trying to exercise regularly. And I'll be here in my house. We live in Southern California. Usually the weather's quite cooperative if I want to take a bike ride. But there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, oh, I don't feel like that oh, it'll be a big hassle to put on all my bicycle clothes. And, oh, I, you know, this, I'm just too tired. It's too late in the day. It's all these little I don't feel like it's that kind of ring from the back of my head that end up, if I keep listening to them, end up feeling like this brick wall. And then the brick wall feels like I can never get through it. But the thing about a resistance is this. It's really more like if I lean on that wall, I discover the wall is actually tissue paper and it's painted to look like a brick wall. And just simply in the act of leaning through it, I realize I can move through it quite easily. And in fact, on the other side of that wall is God there inviting me into some new experience of his presence. So resistance is usually about the the no that happens inside of me that gets in the way of the yes that my heart really wants to say. Well, I wish we had more time to go through the chapters, but I would encourage our listeners. I hope they're um, they're intrigued. I hope they'll pick up the book and walk through this 
um, chapter by chapter, because I think it will be, uh, as it was for me, very helpful in understanding a, a bit more about myself and how I so often get in the way when I'd much rather point the finger outward uh, to others or other things. Again, the book is titled, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Jim and Alan Fadling. Could I just ask you briefly to tell me a, a bit or tell our listeners a, a little bit about um, your organization that uh, is having an impact uh, um, uh, for leaders as well? Well, um, yes, yeah, so our organization is called Unhurried Living. You mm-hmm. can Find out more about what we do at unharryliving.com. And um, we basically come along leaders to help them rediscover the genius of Jesus' unhurried way of living and leading. A lot of times leaders are so frantically doing so many things that they, they believe God's called them to do or that they want to do to honor God. And we think that if, if leaders can slow down just a bit, maybe walk at the pace of love instead of at the pace of you know, the frantic pace of our culture, mm-hmm. that maybe they'll have a greater sense of how God is coming alongside them, how God has called them, how God is guiding them. And so we do a lot of work with leaders around the world in that spirit. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. I so appreciate it. Thank, thank you. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later in the program, we'll talk with Dr. Kevin Pham, a contributor to the Daily Signal and a graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the coronavirus drug that's proven to be the first life-saving drug for those who have been on a ventilator or receiving oxygen. So good news. We'll also talk with Joe DiCarlo. He's the global ambassador for Medical Teams International on World Refugee Day and how COVID-19 is posing a major threat across the globe. Well, speaking about uh, across the globe, across our country, a growing number of elderly people residing in nursing homes, as we know, have died from COVID-19 exposure since the shutdown was ordered. In New York, for example, 5,433 and growing, a number of elderly long-term care facility residents were reported dead. Well, this came after the governor ordered uh, such service centers to admit COVID-19 patients. Well, this bears the uh, question to any of us who have loved ones in care facilities are concerned that that might be necessary at some point in the future. Are my elderly loved ones safe? Well, Anne-Marie Hancock is the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral, where she chronicles caring for her own mother, who was diagnosed with cancer, and along the way, what she learned about nursing homes and stay-at-home caregiving. She understands what's important when our loved ones need a long-term care facility and the kinds of questions uh, that need to be asked. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Georgine. This is lovely. And so happy to talk about such a timely topic, one that uh, we will all face one day and many are facing right as we speak. Absolutely. Whether or not there's a pandemic, there are some questions that need to be fundamental questions that need to be asked. And it certainly applies um, perhaps uh, with greater uh, pressure under these circumstances. But when we're considering a, a loved one who is in a care facility, a nursing home, what are some of the things that need to be uh, considered or asked to determine whether or not the loved one is being properly cared for under this very extraordinary circumstance? Well, one, you certainly want to do your homework on the facility. And uh, many of the facilities are particularly challenged now. You want to know, one, that they're financially sound, uh, you want to investigate and feel comfortable asking about st- 
staff and their hours and whether they have enough staff, if they're stressed, because we all know that uh, nursing homes, uh, people come, people go. Uh, it's a challenging operation mm-hmm. uh, to keep people. Uh, you want to know what the recreational opportunities are. You want to know how they're handling meals and social distancing. All of these things are extremely important. You also want to know uh, how they are spiritually and emotionally enriching these people, many of them who are very fearful uh, many at the end of their lives or their journeys, and uh, obviously they have a lot of fear inside them, and you want them because we love them to be secure and to be safe. Uh, obviously, COVID has changed the social distancing situation as regards uh, taking our elderly to church, uh, card games and bridge games and uh, social activities, whether it's yoga and their uh, gathering, uh, all of these things, are they being eliminated? What are you doing to socially enrich my mother, my sister? What are you doing spiritually? You have to know about meals. You have to know about staff. And I'm going to go back to it. Make sure the facility is financially sound. We made a decision I should, I should say my mom made a decision. Uh, she wanted to be at home. And we had invited her to come and live with us. We have plenty of space out on the river. And she said, no, um, I want to be independent. I love Archie Bunker. I love <laughs> Archie Bunker. I like my Notre Dame football. I want to watch what I want to watch, and I want to do it when I want to do it. Uh, so obviously that posed a challenge because uh, in a home where there are uh, several siblings, everybody can pitch in. But the task fell to my husband and I, who was um, executor and trustee. And um, I walked away from everything that I was doing and decided this was way too important not to commit. And we all know, Georgine, that love is not convenient. It is That's the middle right. of the night, the afternoon. It's not when you feel like it or uh, when it's convenient for you. It's like having a baby. The babies don't cry just uh, two to four. They cry sometimes all night. They have colic. And the same applies to our elderly loved ones. Um when you're dealing with cancer and so many of these uh, terminal issues, uh, the pain could come at every, any hour. So for my husband and I, we kept mom in her home, and I would just run over each day, spend the better part of it, and run back and forth between my home and her home. And obviously a lot of considerations there, a lot of lessons there. Yes. A lot of lessons. I'd had a healing ministry with, that was international. It took me all over the world for several years. I had spent a great deal of time with terminally ill children uh, and adults. And uh, 
watching, being with them uh, till the end of life. And so I thought I was particularly prepared to deal with uh, my mom. And I was to learn that I was a novice. Every mm. person, of course, is different. Yes. And my mother is a very complex person, and she's Irish, and very determined, and very, uh, she's very much in control. And so a cancer diagnosis was quite a shock to her. She had a, a little dot on her forehead inside of four months uh, that took the top of her head, the side of her face, cracked her spine and uh, gave her a terminal diagnosis. And uh, she had great difficulty with this. And I had to learn some new tools. That's what I'm saying, Georgine. And we all, whether it's COVID or uh, nursing home or dealing with our loved ones in their own home or your home, there are so many lessons that are extremely important for me, at the top of the list in my entire life has been God. I believe that faith is true confidence, and I have so much faith, and it has always served me beautifully. But as I pointed out, I had new lessons to learn. Yes, Underneath yes. is a sense of humor. You have got to be able to laugh at yourself and laugh at life. You have got to be able and put yourself in a situation where you are not taking criticism personally. It is imperative that you realize you are not walking the walk. It is not your journey. And for me, it was my mother's journey. And I had to remind myself constantly to be loving, uplifting, helpful, and hopeful. And at the top of that, not to take things personally. Um, when you are going through uh, the process, the dying process, and it's a grieving process, um, it's very challenging for the person walking that walk. And you will see personality transformations. Um, I used the example one day, and I mentioned it in the you can't drive your car to your own funeral. We were going down Charter Colony in Virginia, and all of a sudden, Mom yelled that I, you're a moron. And um, I said, excuse me, Mama what? You're a moron, Ann. And uh, I pulled the car quietly, calmly to the side of the road. And I said, Mom, listen, we're Irish. And a couple of years ago, I spent time in Ireland researching our family name. While it's spelled M-O-R-A-N, it's pronounced moron. <laughs> We're a whole family of morons. <laughs> and I found when I was able to do that, Georgine, that I could get a smile from her. And it kind of cut through the tension and the stress. And yeah. I know that my mom doesn't really feel that. She was stressed, and she knew that she, we were supposed to be going to another doctor. She was frustrated. She's terrified. And so out comes 
and to the person she's most comfortable with, right? Family. You know, we're, we're all our authentic selves with family. And so it's, and you're a moron. And, um, and then there were other things very similar to that. Well, I tell you what, we're, go, we're out of time. Um, we need more time for a conversation. So I'm going to ask my producer to contact you and see if we can schedule another opportunity to have a longer conversation. Uh, but once again, I want to mention to our listeners the book that you're referencing, You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral, Anne-Marie Hancock. We will continue this conversation on another occasion, and I look forward to that. Thank you, Georgine. This has been lovely. Thank you so much. Look forward to You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier in the program, there is a cheap and widely available drug that apparently can help save the lives of patients who are seriously ill with coronavirus. We're talking about those who have been on ventilators or those who are receiving oxygen, those considered to be the least likely to recover when they're in serious condition. Well, here to talk with us about this drug Dexamethasone is uh, Dr. Kevin Pham. He is a contributor to the Daily Signal and a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I mentioned a moment ago that dexamethasone, and you can correct me if I'm mispronouncing it, which I probably am, it's a cheap and widely available drug. It's been around since the 60s. Um, How is this drug being applied and who is benefiting most from its use? So dexamethasone, and um, for ease of use, you can call it dex or dexa. That's how other people <laughs> typically refer to it. But um, how it's usually used, it's, uh, it's a steroid. It's a very strong anti-inflammatory drug. And so if the um, further along in the disease course, what we're seeing is that it's not necessarily the viral infection itself that's killing, killing uh, patients. It's the inflammatory response, the over-inflammation, the hyperactivation of the inflammatory system that's doing all the damage to the lung. So if you're using this, um, if you're using the steroid dexamethasone, if you're using that to really tamp down and put a blanket over the inflammation, then you can prevent further escalation of the disease or bring it back down to, to a more manageable and recoverable level, which is why we're seeing that the really severe uh, patients, the ones who are on ventilators. Well, first off, I, I should say that this is all based on the press release. So what the press release is saying is that, um, you know, the more severe, the critically ill patients are benefiting a lot more from, from, bringing this inflammation down up to a third improvement in mortality rate. Well, that's incredible. And this, um, this study has been conducted in the UK um, and uh, one of the universities there as well. So this is a trial at this point? It's, uh, so the study itself, I believe, has concluded, and right now they're writing the paper. And so I do want to point out that what we're looking at right now is only the press release that's coming out of this. It's not, um, you know, the... The data hasn't been peer-reviewed by anybody. It hasn't been been exposed for other experts to look at and to to crunch through. And that's uh, that's only only an issue because we've seen several misfires as far as uh, Mm -hmm. drugs and press releases go. You know, what the issue with hydroxychloroquine, is it good, is it bad, does it work, does it not work? Um, And so we should be a little bit hesitant before we see the actual data. That data is not here yet. Uh, It's also important to point out that uh, individuals should not – um, uh, apply the drug themselves. This is applied in a hospital setting, and there's always the concern that people will get their hands on it thinking that they can self-medicate. 
Right, exactly. The, the, the benefit that we're seeing here is mostly from people who are severe to critically ill. So anyone who is not already in a hospital might not benefit from taking this drug. There are other studies that um, are looking at whether earlier use of this drug or a similar drug may have benefits for people who are in the outpatient setting. But just right now, we don't have that data. And so if right. anybody has you know, some steroids sitting around, please do not take that if you think you have uh, COVID-19. Well, tell us about dexamethasone. What is the drug and how had it been used over the decades? It's usually, it's a steroid, as I keep mentioning. It's a steroid, so it's been, so that class of drug has been in use for a long time. And its primary use is as either an anti-inflammatory, a very strong anti-inflammatory, or as an immunosuppressant. So what it's typically used for is as, a, as breathing treatments or, or, um, or allergic responses. Those kind of things are, you know, flare-ups of inbuilt systems of the body. When it gets a little bit overactivated or a little out of, um, out of sync with what it's supposed to do, you use this drug like a prednisone, a lot of people are familiar with that drug, you use these drugs to, to bring that inflammation down or bring the immune response down to a more functional level, to a more um, beneficial level for, uh, for the patient. Now, one of the features that I, I think was promising to a lot of us who are just reading the article, and as you pointed out, it's yet to be peer-reviewed and we don't have all of the data, is that this is a readily available and affordable drug. And this could have implications not just for countries like the U.K. and the United States, but if it is found to be efficacious, this could have uh, great promise for um, other countries that don't have access to uh, solid uh, health care uh, and certainly financing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the drugs that have, are being researched for exactly this purpose, which is to attack the, uh, the inflammatory overactivation, is uh, tocilizumab, which is um, it's a biologic, and it's in trial. It's not approved for anything. And that's been working really well for some doctors, but that's a, it's a brand spanking new drug, so it's going to be really difficult for a third-world country or even just any, any less affluent country to be able to get large doses of it. So if dexamethasone turns out to be efficacious, then that would be very good for... Um, for less affluent countries to treat this, uh, treat this virus. The article points out that half of all COVID patients who require a ventilator don't survive. So cutting that risk by a third, and that's what they're saying this drug will do, will have a huge uh, impact. We think about places like New York where nursing home deaths and those who um, have been on ventilators has, have been uh, quite severe. This could have, moving forward, a significant impact. What's the process necessary for this drug to be sufficiently evaluated to then make it available, assuming it works as, uh, as stated, um, and available to people who desperately need it now? Well, in truth, a lot of doctors are already using this for their patients, especially the critically ill patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been working, we've been looking at the cytokine storm, the in, that's the inflammatory picture. And then so steroids are pretty, pretty frequently used. The main thing about this is that this is actually a trial where they, com- they controlled it, a certain um, intervention group with a control group. And so that's why this is getting so much buzz. But um, doctors have already been using it. And you don't, there isn't necessarily any new processes for this. But um, with, the, with the results of this, if it turns out to be, to, to be a real result, then the FDA may, uh, in- may include a new um, indication for dexamethasone for COVID-19. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow what happens next. I appreciate your uh, expertise in helping us better understand what the prospects are for the future and what to look for uh, in the days ahead. Thank you so much, Dr. Pham. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, responding to a headline, coronavirus 
uh, dexamethasone, Peru's first life-saving drug, and uh, apparently it cusps, uh, they're saying in the article, it cusps the risk of death by a third for patients on ventilators. For those on oxygen, it cuts uh, deaths by a fifth. Um, but again, this is the press release, and as he pointed out, the peer-reviewed study has not yet been made available. By the way, Dr. Uh, Kevin Pham is a contributor to the Daily Signal. He's also a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation on this uh, this new drug. We'll certainly continue to follow this, this to see what, uh, what happens. What we're learning is that steroids, uh, as we know, they're a powerful anti-inflammatory drug, and they're treating the inflammation rather than chasing the virus. And this may be the best course of action, especially for those in or about to go into ICU. So it's encouraging to know that this is uh, another uh, thing that they can uh, look to as potentially helping those patients who are struggling. They also, um, this drug is also immunosuppressant, so uh, you have to be sure the target is uh, of the target before uh, using a steroid. But if there is no um, bacterial sub-infections in severe COVID-19 patients, treating them with this steroid is probably going to be a highly effective drug. So Again, we'll continue to follow this story and uh, let you know if any new developments uh, are coming up. Um, speaking of coming up, we're going to talk with Joe DiCarlo. He's the global ambassador with Medical Teams International on World Relief Day. That's coming up on Saturday. We're going to talk about how COVID-19 is posing a major threat to refugees around the world. I happen to know Joe DiCarlo, and he is just a, a f- veritable font of information. And I just have such a high regard and respect for him and the work that he does with medical teams. He'll join us to talk about that, not just to inform us, but to let us know, is there something we can do to help relieve the suffering of others who don't have access to the kind of information and treatments uh, that you and I do. So that's coming up in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier in the program, this Saturday is World Refugee Day. Medical Teams International is joining voices around the world in marking World Refugee Day this Saturday, the 20th, a day to acknowledge the strength and perseverance of approximately 50 million refugees worldwide. Think about that, 50 million refugees worldwide. Well, the threat of COVID-19 has uh, uh, increase the urgency and the need for compassionate action worldwide and to help us appreciate that and to tell us what we can do about it is Joe DiCarlo. He is a global ambassador for Medical Teams International, someone I have had a, a tremendous admiration for for many years, and I'm just honored to have you on the program today. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Georgina. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, as I mentioned, Saturday is World Refugee Day. Explain what the day is and what it represents. Yes. Um, Well, first of all, I just want to say that um, this is an important time because we are seeing more and more not only refugee but displaced populations around the world. As a matter of fact, at the end of 2019, there were 79.5 million displaced and refugee populations. So there are people who cross the border in order to get their lives safe, to be safe from violence, but also many, many millions are displaced within their own country. So the numbers uh, are alarming, and they have been increasing every year for the last 10 years. Mm. 
Now, distinguish um, the difference between because we're we're talking a lot in our country about immigration and people tend to bristle with the use of that word. Define what a refugee is. As you pointed out, they may be displaced within their own countries or have uh, been forced by violence or other reasons to cross into uh, cross the borders into other countries. Define what a refugee is um, for the purposes of World Refugee Day. Yes, I I think the best way uh, to define uh, what a refugee is is by listening to the stories of the refugees themselves. Um, I met a woman by the name of Esther in northern Uganda. And Esther said to me, um, my husband came to me um, and told me that the bullets are getting too close to our house. Esther, I want you to take a suitcase and I want you to go to the border into into Uganda. She lives with her husband in the town of Ye in South Sudan. Esther told me that she walked for three days in order Mm -hmm. to get to the border. And, And as she walked and as she got closer to the border, she became increasingly frightened and agitated because when she saw the soldiers on the South Sudanese side, she didn't know if they were rebels. She didn't know if they were government soldiers. She didn't know what was going to happen to her. And she said to me, Joe, I cried out to God, God, please help me. And she got through the border. And when she got to the Uganda side, there was medical teams. Because we are there in order to provide health care for um, every refugee that crosses. We do a health check. And if we find someone that crosses, who uh, has an emergency need, they're immediately brought to the emergency center for care. Well, as it happened, Esther, after three days of walking and all that she went through, she was nine months pregnant. And we immediately brought her into the maternity ward where she uh, had a beautiful baby boy. And Georgine, when I sat there with her, maybe a day or two later after this baby was born, I said, Esther, Uh, what are you going to name your baby? And she said, I'm not sure, but I think I may call him Abel because God is able. Mm. Now, Esther is a representative of millions and millions, primarily women who are refugees, and they demonstrate strength and faith and perseverance to provide a better life, to be safe and to provide a better life for their children. There is a wonderful poem, a very powerful poem, uh, by uh, a refugee woman by the name of Warsan Shire from Somalia. And the title of the poem is Home. And this gives us a really solid picture of what, what it is to be a refugee. Just a few verses of this long poem state, No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. Mm. The preference when I sit with Syrian refugees in Lebanon or, or uh, South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, the preference is to go home, to go back to their life that they had, to go back to school, go back to their communities, go back to their churches. Um, they don't, they're not leaving for economic advantage or benefit. They're leaving because home won't let them stay. Yeah, yeah. What what um, challenge has COVID nineteen presented in trying to help those 
who are displaced. I can't even imagine. We're struggling here with, you know, we just heard that we all have to wear face masks in most counties after the 24th. What are some of the COVID-19 challenges that I, I can't even imagine under these circumstances you've described? Yes. Well, think about um, what we, we are asked to do. We are to wear masks. We are to uh, relate with one, one another uh, in a socially distant uh, manner. And then think of a refugee camp. Um, where medical teams is working in Bangladesh, there are 600,000 people in this camp where hand washing may be a luxury, you know, where uh, social distancing will be a real, a real challenge. And if COVID-19 would happen to make its way in to a refugee camp, it could easily spread. And, and we are praying that the Lord will just protect these camps and keep COVID out uh, because uh, there's a real threat there. Uh, in, in Bangladesh, in, um, in the, a place called Kutapalang Refugee Camp, there are 600,000 people, and we're serving 100,000 providing mm. health care. We have been asked by UNHCR, the UN agency that manages refugees, to uh, transition one of our clinics into a COVID isolation and treatment center. And we have successfully done that, and it's a 50-bed center. Fortunately, I say fortunately, we only have three people uh, being treated right now at this time. And uh, a fourth one was there and was released and, uh, because uh, he recovered. But more and more testing is taking place in the refugee camps. And, and the fear is that there'll be more and more positive cases. So mm. COVID is a real challenge in the camps. Let me just tell you something that I'm very excited about. Um, I'm excited about the fact that the way medical teams is, is working with the faith communities in those camps uh, in order to provide assistance and added muscle to health messaging. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, a pastor that I know, his name is Emac Jackson. He's a refugee in Tanzania. And um, he took a church of 500 people in the refugee camp. Uh, he has been a refugee from Congo for over 19 years. Uh, now, in this camp of 160,000 people, there are uh, 150 faith communities or congregations in that camp. And to ignore them uh, is, is, is ignoring a tremendous resource for helping to promote the health of women and children. So we bring the faith leaders together. We provide a week of training on, on newborn child health. We look at what scripture says about how we support women and children. And then we equip them, uh, the faith leaders, the pastors, as well as the congregations, to go out to the community. So not only to provide health messages to the community, but also to address their spiritual needs and their emotional needs as well. And so when COVID happened, we were able to pivot our work with the, with the pastors to address the issues for COVID-19, uh, prevention messages, um, and, and what to look for as symptoms, um, how to keep your family and your community safe. And they're doing that in a very uh, unique and special way. Um, the messages are going out from the pulpit on Sundays, 
at Bible studies during the week. And then uh, some churches are even using their amplification equipment and, and broadcasting them in the marketplaces in order to keep people safe. Keep them safe. Pastors are saying to us, thank you for engaging with us. Um, we, we want to partner with you, and we're honored to partner with the church. Mm. Now, I think it's important on a refugee day that we not, not only are better informed about what the situation is, but what's one of the most important ways that we can help uh, medical teams minister in this way in the refugee camp you just described? Yeah, uh, first of all, I would say um, pray. Um, we need uh, the prayers of believers around the world. Um, I'm in contact with the, our doctors in, in Bangladesh, for example, and, and we have a Bible study every week. Uh, Dr. Robert is his name, and uh, he's actually Ugandan in Bangladesh, a medical team staff member from Uganda transferred to Bangladesh. Um, and we pray together, and he'll say, Joe, just have people pray. Um, also, though, you can, uh, you can give. You can go to our website at medicalteams.org and, um, and uh, contribute uh, to this organization. Walk with us, work with us, uh, partner with us, so that together uh, we can make a difference. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Joe DiCarlo, I so appreciate the work that you do and certainly the work of medical teams. And I would encourage our listeners to go to the website, medicalteams.org, where you can contribute to the ongoing work there. Uh, Tremendous work by Medical Teams International. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. And thank you so much, Georgine. Again, Joe DiCarlo is the Global Ambassador with Medical Teams International. They do significant work. And I should mention the uh, Bangladeshi um, camp that he made reference to, Kudapalong. It's the world's largest refugee camp, and Medical Teams is serving there. And we have the opportunity to serve alongside them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court ruled today that the Trump administration's effort to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or DACA, is arbitrary and capricious and cannot proceed. Now, they didn't rule on the merits of the case, only that it wasn't presented effectively. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberal judges, ruled that Trump's decision to rescind DACA violated the Administrative Procedures Act. DACA, which was instituted in 2012 by the president, uh, then President Obama, allowed 700,000 illegal aliens who were brought to the United States as children to apply for a two-year deportation deferral. The deferral, which comes with work eligibility, can be renewed but does not provide a path to citizenship. Well, here the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to retain forbearance and what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients, the court wrote, declining to rule on the legality of DACA itself. That dual failure raises doubts about whether the agency appreciated the scope of its discretion or exercised that discretion in a reasonable manner. The appropriate recourse is therefore to remand to DHS so that it may reconsider the problem anew. Well, in dissent, Justice Clarence Thomas, joined the, uh, by Justices Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch, wrote that DACA was illegal from its inception. Under the auspices of today's decision, administrations can bind their successors by unlawfully adopting significant legal changes through executive branch agency memoranda, Thomas wrote, even if the agency lacked authority to 
um, effectuate the, the changes. The changes cannot be undone by the same agency in a successor administration unless the successor provides sufficient policy justifications to the satisfaction of this court. In other words, the majority erroneously uh, holds that the agency is not only permitted but required to continue administering unlawful programs that it inherited from a previous administration. Well, in his own dissent, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh argued that the court was misapplying the APA's arbitrary and capricious standard by focusing only on a memorandum issued in 2017 by then-acting DHS Secretary Elaine Duke, rather than also analyzing a follow-up issue in 2018 by former DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. All of that said, no decision was made, certainly on the merits of the case. And there are still a lot of frustrated people here in the state of Oregon when it comes to filing for unemployment and getting those benefits. On Wednesday, the Oregon Employment Department gave an update to the situation. The numbers are staggering. David um, Gerstenfeld, the acting director of the Employment Department, said about 70,000 claims from self-employed workers still haven't been processed. He said uh, steps are being taken to try to get those claims processed. He said the department is beefing up staffing for phones and adding more phone lines. Staff are also trying to be more proactive and reach out to people instead of waiting for them to call. But they've run uh, into some challenges. For instance, he says we've learned that on some people's phones, if they have a spam filter or if they have certain wireless carriers, even though we're calling for from one of our own call centers in Oregon, the phone number may show up as out-of-state or, in some cases, out-of-country phone number, so people aren't answering the phone. Wait times have been shortened, although not by much. He says if you've um, got an issue, unfortunately, your best bet is still to give us a call. The job loss caused by the coronavirus has exposed numerous flaws in the employment department, which was already known uh, but from outdated equipment and systems to not having enough workers to process and pay out claims. So the pain continues for fellow Oregonians who have applied for but yet to receive unemployment benefits. And Oregonians in seven counties that are home to more than 55% of the state's population will soon have to wear masks whenever they're in stores or other indoor public spaces, according to the governor's announcement on Wednesday. Starting on the 24th, people in Multnomah, Clackamas, Washington, Marion, Polk, Hood River, and Lincoln counties must cover their faces in such settings to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the governor said in a statement. It will be the latest executive order from the governor in an attempt to rein in the coronavirus outbreak in the state that has sickened thousands, but far fewer than most states across the country. And on its second attempt in as many weeks, the Portland City Council passed a budget Wednesday that will reroute more than $15 million from the police bureau to other city programs and initiatives. The cuts include disbanding police units that work in schools, investigate gun violence, and patrol the regional public transit system. The council voted 3-1 to one to adopt the $5.6 billion spending plan that kicks in July the 1st. Commissioner Chloe Udaley, for the second time, voted against the budget, noting how many people have called for as much as $50 million to be removed from the police budget. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, before voting yes, said she believed the $50 million tally was based on nothing and hadn't seen any analysis on how that amount correlated with what the police bureau does and the direction the city wants to move in. She urged the public to instead celebrate this incredible moment that we're in. Well, I'm not sure it's an incredible moment, but and it's worthy of celebration, but the police bureau has lost $15 million from its um, city uh, programs and initiatives. I just hope when you call 911, someone actually responds. Meanwhile, hundreds of protesters chanting Black Lives Matter and Hands Up, Don't Shoot 
were seen on video rallying outside the Portland mayor's apartment late Wednesday night after city commissioners voted to slash only $16 million from the police department's budget. They had uh, advocated for $50 million. The cuts to the police $245 million overall budget were passed, as I mentioned, three to one. Um, although some protesters have been urging city officials to reduce the department's spending package for the 2021 fiscal year by up to $50 million. The money saved by eliminating uh, the uh, programs that I mentioned are going to be redirected to social service programs. Uh, never in my life would I have imagined that we or any government would be able to cut that much significant resource out of the police budget. That's a, a quote from Commissioner Joe Hardesty, the one that voted yes uh, quoting, uh, quoted rather by the Oregon, Oregonian, uh, saying uh, Wheeler, who is also the city's police commissioner, also voted yes. The newspaper added. Now, she can't imagine that so much could be cut. The question is whether or not this is political pandering or this is in the best interest of all the residents of the city of Portland. Um, I don't know the answer to that question just yet. I'm still running the numbers and trying to understand what was done. But it seems to me, just on a brief glance at what they have proposed and now done, it's not in the best interest of the broader population. But we'll continue to evaluate to determine if I'm wrong. And I will certainly let you know because um, we all want to know what's right. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.